Well, when we meet Jesus in our scripture lesson for today, he has been conducting a ministry of healing and teaching all along the northern shore of Lake Gennesaret, or that body of water in northern Israel we have come to know as the Sea of Galilee. The work of Jesus has been attracting an expanding crowd of would-be disciples or of interested onlookers. Many of them apparently are beginning to see Jesus as a meal ticket, as somebody that can not only provide literal food, but may be able to deliver them a more prosperous and and comfortable life. And so they're following him with an interest in what he may do in this regard. Others are seeing Jesus as another one of those good causes. He was somebody to whom they could be partially committed and perhaps learn something, perhaps be part of a, a spiritual movement in their land. But Jesus, we can tell from how he descri- or responds to some of these followers in, this, in chapter 7 of the text, Jesus is, is clearly not interested in this kind of half-hearted or selfish devotion. Jesus is looking for a much deeper kind of devotion and the kind of deeper life that flows from that level of commitment. And so in the verses that immediately precede, the ones that we read today in verse 23 and following, we see Jesus, in effect, chasing away some of these half-hearted, superficially committed uh, followers. And then Jesus gathers the 12 disciples who have been most committed to him, the ones who have been with him the longest, And he gives them the order to cross with him now to the other side of the lake. He's going to separate himself from the crowd. He's going to pour himself into the twelve. And they're going to do so as they journey across to the other side of the lake. Matthew 8 and 23 picks up the story. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. The implication here is that the boat now pushes off from shore and heads out into the deeper water when, and I quote, without warning, a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Now, it's helpful to remember that the men that are traveling with Jesus at this particular moment do what for a living? They're fishermen, that's right. These are seasoned watermen. They had ridden out plenty of storms, to be sure. But the one that comes up upon them on that particular day is something rare indeed. The English translation says simply that it was a furious storm. But the original Greek, I think, evokes a a greater sense of what was really going on here. The original Greek, the words that are translated as furious storm are seismos megas. Seismos megas. Think mega seismic. In other words, it wasn't just a bad gale that was uh, uh, affecting them at that moment. It was a veritable aquaquake. It was the kind of mega monster of a typhoon that turns the uh, bowels of even the most seasoned water person into mush. It was a perfect storm, if you've ever seen the movie. It was that kind of a, an event. Now, you can just see Peter and the rest of them in your mind's eye, can't you? They're wide-eyed and they're white-knuckling the gunnels as mountainous waves surge up all around them, dwarfing their tiny craft. Any one of those waves so easily could just pummel down and blow the boat into, into shards. It could happen at any moment. You can hear them, perhaps, in your imagination, shouting to one another, get that sail down, John! Bail faster, James! Turn the bow, Peter! Another wave's coming! Jesus, they cry out. 
Jesus. As they whipped their heads around to to where their master had been sitting. But, the Bible says, Jesus was sleeping. Jesus was sleeping. It feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? This, this story that we're, we're unpacking, this is, this is a description of a scenario that some of us know. We've been in this kind of a boat before. One minute life is calm and the sun is shining. The boat of our life's cruising along peacefully. Maybe there's a, a little bit of chop, a, a tiny bit of turbulence, but nothing we haven't seen before, nothing we can't handle. The sea spray of life and the rocking of life's boat, that's familiar to us. We've been there, but then, then, without warning sometimes, the wind starts to really whip up. Until we know that what we're facing right now is no ordinary gale. The late night phone call comes to us and it's from the hospital. The unexpected knock comes from the door and it's the police. The discovery is made that it is not in fact a cold. It is cancer. Or some other dreaded illness. It is not an emotional drift that's been going on in the relationship. It's an affair. It's not just one drink too many. It's an addiction. It's not a heavy truck going by. It's an earthquake. It's not just a momentary economic downturn. It's long-term unemployment, displacement, bankruptcy. It's not one of those little tests or those little tribulations that we know are just a part of life. It is a seismos megas that is happening. And like the disciples in that boat, we can barely hear our voices screaming against the wind and the darkness of life. Jesus, Jesus, God, do something. Save us. And there's no answer. There's no answer. And we're confused by this. Because we've been taught that God cares. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? The Bible tells me so. I've been taught, you've been taught, often from very young, that God cares. And we have trusted, maybe not perfectly, not all the time, but... Much of the time, we've trusted that there is someplace, somewhere out there, someone who notices what's going on with us and is concerned for our welfare. And we've followed him this far in life. Again, not perfectly. I mean, we've not been perfect followers. We admit that. But with some measure of perseverance, more than maybe other people. And yet now in our moment of most terrified need, where is he? Where is he? He's sleeping. He's sleeping on the job. He's apparently utterly insensible to our condition. He is leaving us to to drift, to despair, maybe even to die. While he's off someplace in his dreams. And so we shout louder. We pray harder. Hoping against hope that somehow we might rouse 
the mighty God. This, I think, is something of of what the original disciples were experiencing in that particular moment. In the Gospel writer Mark's telling of this very same story, we're given a little more detail. We're told that Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. We know actually a little more about that particular detail today. For back in 1986, northern Israel endured this tremendous long-term drought. It dropped the water level of the Sea of Galilee to a point that it had not been known for more than 2,000 years. It exposed the raised prow of an old fishing boat buried in the mud. Just a piece of wood sticking out of the mud at first. But then along came these two brothers and they began to dig. And what they found was this old fishing boat that had somehow been amazingly well preserved in the mud. And carbon dating definitively pegged it as a first century fishing boat. Exactly the kind Jesus would have been in in this story. And what is even more fascinating is what they found in the stern of the boat. Because you see, it appears that fishermen back then would take a a sack and they would fill it with sand and they would put it in the stern of the boat and it served as a form of movable ballast for the boat. And it was exactly the kind of item that somebody, if they wanted to, could curl up next to and use as a cushion to go to sleep. As remarkable as that discovery was, it isn't half as amazing as as what happens next in in this story. In the midst of the storm, the Bible says, the disciples went and woke Jesus. You know, it's not enough to say, hey, honey, wake up. Honey, you will wake up, right? They woke Jesus up. Saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Mark's gospel supplies a further nuance to their statement that feels, I think, even closer to the sentiment that most of us would have and do have in the midst of life's worst storms. Teacher, they cried, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care? I mean, why aren't you showing more care is what they're saying. And in that characteristically maddening mode that is pure Jesus, the Lord responds to their question by asking a question of his own. Jesus replied, the scripture says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Now, I don't know about you, but there is certainly something in me that would want to counter in that moment. Why, Lord, would you even ask a question like that? (laughs) On the one hand, the question of Jesus here sounds sounds like a crazy inquiry. It's utterly out of touch with reality. Are you kidding us, Jesus? Hello? This is a seismos megas we have going here. 
I mean, what is it about a cold, gurgling death that seems like a good idea? This is a crazy question you're asking. Or else the question of Jesus here can seem like an awfully harsh reprimand if you look at it. He seems to be scolding his disciples, doesn't he? I mean, where's your faith, guys? Are you such wimps that you're actually scared? My wife has this little plaque at home that, she, that sits above our oven, uh, and, and, it, and it has this particular sentiment in it. And I can imagine Jesus maybe meaning this by this particular text. It was, you know, pull up your big girl panties and deal with it, is what my wife's plaque says. Man up, guys. Is that what Jesus is saying? Man up. Man up. Have a little more confidence in me, will you? Now, I don't think that the question of Jesus here is actually irrational or irritated, though it appears that way at the start. I think the question of of Jesus here is, in fact, simply another one of those great questions that are his signature. I think it's another one of those great questions that rise up through the mud of time like the prow of that ancient fishing boat to seize our attention and to prompt us to start digging further to get to someplace deep and to find something very important. Fear, you see, is a fascinating emotion. It's a, it's a really fascinating emotion. It, it drives a lot of us a lot of the time. And sometimes that fear, I want to suggest to you, is actually an unwelcome gift, if you think about it. It can be life's warning light, can it? Where would we be without the, 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 that gasp of, <gasps> when the light goes on, the dashboard, that tells us that something is wrong, that things need to get checked out, that we need to slow down, maybe to stop altogether in order to address a need. Fear can be life's warning light. It can also be life's alarm clock, if you think about it. Sometimes we wouldn't wake up to the dangers that confront us were it not for the surge of fear that comes up in response to the moment. Wake us up and make us move to help us avoid the ultimate impact of those dangers. Fear can also be life's neon arrow. It can be that thing that, that, that challenges us to pay attention to a relationship we've sort of not been paying attention to amidst all the other things that are attracting us. And suddenly the arrow of fear points us to this thing and we start working on it. Or we make a hard right turn in the direction of something that we need to take, a, a, a road that leads to a better path in life. Fear can help us It can be a gift in those kinds of ways. Even being afraid for our life, I submit to you. Even being shaken into recognizing that we're mortal creatures who depend upon God not only for our origin, but for our continuation and for our ultimate salvation. That's a profound gift. I can't tell you how many people have spoken to me after a terrible crisis has hit them in life. And said, you know, I know this sounds strange. I would never have wanted this to happen to me again. But, you know, this is weird. But I'm actually thankful for some of it now because it it just helped me see with new eyes the value of people 
the priorities of life, the gift that is life. Fear, as difficult an emotion as it can be, can be a gift. Here's a radical thought. Here's a a countercultural, contra-religious thought. Maybe Jesus puts his head down on the cushion sometimes. Maybe Jesus seems to take a snooze through our terrified cries because he actually wants us to be afraid. That's a challenge to the therapeutic Jesus, isn't it? But maybe he wants us to feel fear. The psalmist says that the fear of the Lord, and one might add fear of the consequences of action or inaction in the face of that Lord's call to us, his commandments to us, that kind of fear can be the beginning of wisdom. In fact, it is the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says. Being totally alive, awake, aware, ready, responsive, paying attention. That's what fear does in us. This can be the beginning of wisdom and the changed behavior that, is, that comes from that wisdom. So if you're afraid of some storm in your life right now, maybe God is, is letting you have this fear as a gift. Maybe he's, maybe he's giving you the warning light. <laughs> he's trying to, to encourage you to drop the sails and to stop trying to move so fast and to check the condition of the boat. Perhaps that fear is an alarm that's causing you to wake up yourself and get focused and grab the oars and start pulling hard for sure and not just wait for somebody else to come along and rescue you from what you're in. Maybe, maybe God is calling you to turn the bow of the boat in some important way toward Him or toward other people. Maybe He's leaving you with that fear so you'll pay attention and you'll respond. When Jesus asks us, why are you so afraid? He offers us a helpful gift in another way, I think, as well. One of the gifts of fear can be the state of alertness, as I've just described. But another gift of fear can be the opportunity to really dig down deep and find out where this fear is coming from. If we sit with the question of Jesus, why are you so afraid? We might get clearer about what's really driving us in life. Sometimes the apparent source of our panic in a given moment is actually only the surface storm of a much deeper current that's been running a long time. And pulling us in a consistent direction that may not be good. I remember a moment many years ago, and I've shared this in recent days with some of you moment when our church was in terrible conflict and congregational giving had plunged precipitously and people were leaving the church in droves, or at least I feared that they were. And night after night, I would just toss and turn in my bed, I just unable to sleep. And I remember crying out to God in the midst of that season of life, Lord, you just got to do something about this. Wake up, God, help me with this. Show me what to do. I'm just lost. And God seemed to say to me in that moment, in other words, Dan... Why are you so afraid? I mean, really, why are you so afraid? Are you crazy? I wanted to shout back. 
This church is going to crack in two. It's going straight to Davy Jones' locker. If this thing doesn't get fixed, the storm is raging. I will have inherited this wonderful church and then presided over its sinking at sea. No, I don't think so, God says in reply. I think they'll just fire you. And <laughs> before it gets really bad, and they'll get somebody else that's more competent. He or she will sort it out. and I think that church will be just fine. <laughs> and I, my jaw drops. You know, I'm in bed. <laughs> you know, as this realization settles upon me, I know he's right. I know he's right. I've been telling myself that the reason for my fear was the, all the storm of the stuff out here in the church and all the conflict and the letters going back and forth. And, because I was so deeply concerned that the church might be ruined. But the truth was, I was so deeply concerned that I might be ruined. You know, that I might be found out not to have been mature enough to really handle this kind of an operation that I might be embarrassed in front of other people, that I might lose my job. And so I just, I admitted that to God. And, and, I, and it was as if God was saying, you know, Dan, now we're making some progress. Let's, let's just play out the, your worst fears. Let's just play them out. So I did. Okay, I lose the job. The church finds a better pastor. I go away and I really think about the mistakes that I've made. I learn from them. I become a much better pastor in my new church in northern Alaska. Uh, <laughs> take up figure skating in my spare time. Our, our family goes on these wonderful moose hunts. Great bonding. God says, that's even more progress. But how about we try this for the moment? Why don't you try being a humbler, more careful, more prayerful pastor right here, right now, and see what happens? You just start by dealing with faith with that selfish storm that's been going on inside of you for I don't know how long. And let me just see what I can do with the wind and the waves that are out there. Why are you so afraid? I mean, what really keeps you up at night? Are you joking, Lord? You want to answer? Can't you see this furious financial storm that all of us are going through? Don't you see what this is meaning for me? I could have to move out of my house and leave behind my community. I mean, this whole thing could turn upside down and we'd be at drift. And God says in response, you know what? You, you could be right about that. Yeah, that, and that would be hard. That would really be hard. You, you, you might have to go live someplace else. You might have to live in very different conditions. You might have to put up with all kinds of things that would make you look unsuccessful and that other people say are, are the opposite of happiness. But where did you ever get the idea that the life you have right now 
is the only possible good. Who told you that? Why do you believe that? You know, it seems to me, I, I remember when Sarah and Abraham said that to me, says God. They were there in Ur of the Chaldees. Life was sweet. And I said to them, no, it's time to go on a journey. It, me, it seems to me, I remember Joseph. There he was up there in Israel doing just fine. And I decided, you know what? It's time to go to Egypt. I can think of so many conversations I've had with people those fishermen, for example, very worried about what it would involve if they left behind their familiar nets. But do you remember how it turned out? Do you remember how it turned out with these people? Do you realize how many forms of good I can bring about to those who simply keep trusting me? Why, why are you so afraid? Ask God. Lord? We answer, can't you see what's going on in my marriage? Don't you see what's happened to this friendship? Aren't you aware of, of what's going on in this relationship with my kid? It's going under. It's top over. Don't you care, God? Don't you care? I do. I do. But what if it turns out that this chaos, this storm is needed because you're a big part of this problem. Because the way you've balanced yourself and poised yourself needs to be undone. And you need to get a new stance if things are going to get any better. Maybe you need to face yourself as you really are. Okay, I can see why that would be hard, especially at the start, says God. But at least you'll be living in truth. At least you'll be flexible and open now. At least you'll have some solid ground on which we can actually build something together. I, I remember when David, I remember David with all of his flaws and failures was afraid of being found out. I remember when Mary Magdalene was the same way. I remember when Peter was so afraid of being found in his insufficiency. But did I ever tell you what I did with those people once they humbled themselves? Did I ever tell you that story? Says God. Why are you so afraid? Are you kidding, God? We want to say, some of us. Don't you see that my body is going down the tubes? I mean, I'm losing this ability and that faculty and, and I've gotten this particular report. Or that person that I love is, is going, going, gone. Okay. Okay, says God, I understand. This is hard. I know. I've been there. I have felt it. I know what it's like to see your body going, to feel it failing, to see the people you love darkening and diminishing and disappearing. I, I know this is one of the hardest challenges I'm ever going to ask you to face. But did I tell you, did I forget to tell you that you and everybody you know are mortal? And that though you have this experience here, it ends. That's part of the deal. All of you die by some means at some time. 
Did I forget to tell you that? Or did you forget that it was true? But listen. Listen to me. All of you. Every one of you, says God. Once upon a time, you left that little womb room. (laughs) That was all you knew of this life. (laughs) Didn't you? Yeah, that was life for you. And you left it. And you traveled down some dark canal or went through some kind of trauma. That's why you call it labor. It was labor. And then all of a sudden, in spite of the terror and the trauma of this experience, you suddenly entered into what? A larger life. That's going to happen again. For all of you. Only this time. You trust me. It's my hands that are going to be catching you when you come out the other end. It's going to be my hands that are guiding you as you enter into a life so much brighter and so much bigger than anything that this world has to offer. So why are you so afraid? The truth is that fear can sometimes be a gift. It can wake us up, warn us, reroute us, shake us in ways that we need. It can drive us to look more deeply at what's really going on underneath the surface. It can drive us into the arms of a God whose grace is sufficient. For all our needs. Fear, unfortunately, isn't always experienced as a gift. Sometimes it feels like a harrowing curse, and it can be. Author Jan Martel writes that sometimes, I quote, fear has no decency. Fear respects no law or convention. It shows no mercy. There are times when fear absolutely takes over the helm of the boat, disabling us in the midst of the storms of life. And it is especially in those moments when fear has gotten the best of us and it's not helpful. It's especially in those moments that we need to look into the eyes of the one who is in the boat with us, who took pains to get into the boat with us. You know, the Bible says that after asking his question, Jesus offered a dramatic sign to his disciples. And I think it's a dramatic sign that's meant to be studied and and taken in by his followers in every generation. The Bible says that Jesus got up. He rose to his full height above the storm. And he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves, the Bible says. And as suddenly and as without warning as it had had become so stormy, it was suddenly completely calm. And the men were amazed. And they asked, what? kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Beloved, it is never because he does not hear that he appears to slumber silently when we are in the midst of our furious tempests. It is never because he does not care that he does not still the storms through which we may pass. 
When God is silent or when God stays his hand, it is simply because he is wise and he is good. He knows when fear is needed to warn us, to wake us, to reroute us, or to shake us. He knows when fear is required to turn us toward him. But the ultimate message of Jesus, and I want to suggest to you of the entire Bible itself, is that if we stay in the boat with him, if we don't bail, lose hope, and swim for our lives, if we stay in the boat with him, we never need to be afraid that we will finally be lost. There will come a day when the storms subside. There will come a day when the sun shines bright. There will come a day when the work he seeks to do in us and through us is completed. For some of us, that may come before the end of this life. For others of us, beyond the edge of this life. But there will come a day, if we trust him, there will come a day when this old boat that we are in now, this battered old boat, comes to rest on eternal shores. Who is this? Who is this that asks this question to us about fear? The answer is, he is someone that even the wind and the waves will obey. He is Jesus. Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, our Lord. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for who you are and for your hands that hold us in the midst of this season. Do your work in us, we pray, for the sake of your glory, through Jesus our Lord. Amen.